Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and today I wanted to continue the discussion on France and a little bit how we've, we've kind of discussed things uh, as they progress, the, the reasons why the French Revolution started, its importance in Bible prophecy, what it means in Revelation chapter 11 with the, the three and a half days or three and a half years that France actually abolished the Bible and all religion there in France. And again, we looked at the causes. We see that we're kind of heading down the same, not kind of, we are heading down the same path here in the United States towards this pure democracy and or communistic, atheistic sort of rule. And, I mean, it's pretty scary when you think about all the things that are going out, the, going around right now. The whole world is protesting against the corruption of their leadership. And it, you just got to wonder how long, how long is the Lord going to hold back the winds of strife before this stuff really starts to boil over? Here in the United States, we are on the brink of going to war with Russia and there's already been threats of nuclear uh, nuclear retaliation by Putin and when you couple that with the things that have happened at the border with the things that that happened in Afghanistan and are still happening in Afghanistan and the the inflation the shortage of supplies the uptake in the price of gas and everything else what you know is inflation but especially gas I, I would say that bothers people the most you know including myself and uh, I work I work in construction and you see what people write inside the uh, the Porter Johns and stuff like that it's not it's not a pretty picture of what people want to do to this presidency and to the leadership and it's kind of interesting. There was actually uh, a sans culotte, which were the, uh, the the foot soldiers of the Jacobins during the French Revolution. They were, they actually broke into the the National Assembly, the building for the National Assembly, and they had their own little insurrection. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting. That's something I learned this week, and that's something that we saw earlier last year at the beginning of the year when right before Biden took office and the Senate was supposed to vote on on accepting the presidency and and all the stuff that happened with regards to the balloting and the polls and the the just the, the catastrophe really of the, the entire voting system here in the United States um, the mail-in ballots and all that stuff it was just it's just a complete mess and then you had those people they did i wouldn't really call it an insurrection but they did uh break into they were pretty much let in as we're seeing more and more now but they they broke into people went into the capitol buildings and it's just interesting because the san culotte did that very same thing of course there i think they were a lot more dangerous the san culotte but today i wanted to discuss in particular, the the aspect of the Jesuits' role in this entire thing, and I think it's very important that we don't miss this, because this beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit that makes war against the two saints, remember that's atheism. It's the king of the south, as we saw in uh, Daniel chapter 11. 
atheism, just like the pharaoh, the Egyptian monarch there. He said, who is the Lord? Um, I know not the Lord. So he, he denied the very existence of God. He was, that was his entire demeanor towards God. And obviously we saw how that ended up for him. Whereas the king of the north, and there was a literal and a, a literal king of the south and king of the north at one point, and that was during the, during the reign of Greece, when you had the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south and the Syrian Babylonian dynasty uh, in the north. And you, you ask yourself, what is spiritual? Because these things, they're not literal anymore. They're spiritual now. We have a spiritual kingdom. Christ is a spiritual lamb, right? Um, we spiritually go to the heavenly sanctuary. It's not a physical one here on earth anymore. And really, it always pointed to that anyway. Uh, any one of these object lessons always pointed to the spiritual truth anyway. But we look at, for instance, the, the issue with the king of the south versus the king of the north. And the king of the south is a spiritual king of the south, represents atheism. It has the same demeanor, the same attitude as Pharaoh did. The king of the north, on the other hand, has uh, it takes over the area where Babylon used to be. Well, who is Babylon in the scriptures? Babylon is Rome. Babylon is Rome. But the kingdoms were at, at one point, they were together. So you see atheism rising up on the one hand, and then you see re really religion and ecumenism rising up on the other, and they, they appear to be doing battle against each other. And that's what we're living through right now. We're living through the king of the south pushing at the king of the north. And as we've said so many times on the show, the king of the north will come back like a whirlwind and ultimately destroy all forms of atheism. But I wanted to read to you a quote from two quotes from the Bible. First one is from Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and it says this, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. They were there. There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. So a couple things we learned there. Number one, uh, it's foolish to say that there is no God. From that point, they become corrupt, licentious, abominable works. That's exactly what we saw during the French Revolution. That's exactly what we're seeing today with all this transgender, transfluid, fluid, non-binary stuff that's going on. It's really, it's it's sick. It's, um, and you know, you... Your heart goes out to people that actually are suffering from, you know, gender dysmorphia or or, or body dysmorphia in its, in its various forms. However, the results, the fruits of, of this movement towards secularism and away from God has been uh, a licentious one. And, and each generation 
It's like it's not even waiting for the generation to end anymore, where it's like one generation used to push the envelope a little further than the next and the next and the next. Now it's like it's not even it's it's within the same generation. The same generation is pushing the envelope twice, three, four times now further. It's not it's not licentious enough. There's not enough worldly approval of abominable acts. They need more and they become basically implacable with this stuff. And very licentious, we're heading down the same path, clearly. But God says they've all become filthy. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. They're incapable of doing it. And then finally, in verse 5, it mentions that they, they are in great fear. That's exactly what you see during the French Revolution. That's what we saw during the Athenian Empire and their version of democracy. That's why the Founding Fathers hated democracy so much, was because it always committed suicide. The people would eventually, the mob mentality would eventually turn on their own and destroy itself. And that's what we saw with the Athenian Empire and Corsera, the island of Corsera, during the Peloponnesian uh, civil war that was going on between Athens and Sparta. And also that's what we see in the French Revolution during the Reign of Terror. But after the Reign of Terror ended, which really, they say it really ended with Robespierre when he, he actually, he did himself in because... He turned on his own guys, he turned on Danton, and he got him guillotined. And then he came to the he came to the convention, the National Convention, I believe it was called at that time, and he said he had a list of people who had committed treason against the Republic. But he refused to give the names of those individuals, and he said he was going to, to give it the next day. So clearly, people saw at that time, well, people were already seeing this, but the other delegates saw that he was basically playing a game and he was he was ruthless and he was a murderer and for for him to come out and say there are people that have committed treason but I'm not going to tell you until tomorrow it, it showed that it showed his true colors and his true nature that he wanted them to be in fear of their lives so before he was able to even come out and the next day and make them mention of who those names of these uh, supposed people that had committed treason were. They all shouted him down and they ended up convicting him of treason against the Republic and he was guillotined. After this point you see a a right wave in France. Uh, the rise of the Thermidorians and they began to persecute the Jacobins and this time period, there was a lot of people that were still killed by guillotine. And a lot of them were, were left-wing fanatics. And this time period is remembered as the White Terror. So there was, an, there was a continuation of the Reign of Terror. The Reign of Terror takes the lion's share in, in its uh, destruction of, of human life. But the White Terror also continued after that. And in the midst of all this turmoil, all of this horrific instability of society one man one corsican italian man rises to power and he is the he is the one to bring balance to the entire thing so i want to also i also want to read to you proverbs chapter 14 so psalm 14 and proverbs 14 interestingly Verse 34, it says, Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
ironically, folks, in France, where they started out with the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which was a declaration of the rights of man without God, is really what it was. Those rights were not even included when Napoleon staged a coup in France and took power. He, first he became the first consul, later he became the emperor. But in his constitution, which he allowed the people to vote on, and there was an overwhelming majority of approval. Some say that the the polling and the uh, the actual voting was, um, you know, he cheated in some way. Or, but at the end of the day, he was beloved by the people. And they were okay with him becoming emperor. He had them take a vote on that as well later on. But they were okay with him uh, writing this constitution, which included nothing about the rights of man. So this bloodbath that ensued in France, it led to the destruction of what little constitution that they had and set up a, a basically another absolute monarchy. However, Napoleon uh, gave them some rights. He, he had some good economic ideas and he actually seemed to be able to rule uh, people fairly well compared to what they were used to. I mean, compared to the mob mentality and compared to the King Louis prior to that and the, the crazy tax system that they had, it was better. But they you, you got to remember, their constitution was destroyed. It was removed. And Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French historian, he mentions that there was nine or ten different constitutions in the first 60 years after France uh, basically started the French Revolution. But today, most importantly, I want to discuss the Jesuits in France. So there's a lot of good reasons to understand and, and, and to keep in the forefront that it was it was the Jesuits that made France happen. They were the Jacobins. They were the Illuminati. I mean, however you want to however you want to list them, whatever name you want to go by, it was them. And this the the first point of evidence I want to point out is from the Great Controversy statement, which I read a couple weeks ago, that where Mrs. White states that the Jesuits were the only ones that 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 were successful in the devastated France. Now, obviously, they're they're undercover at that point because many Catholic countries, including France, had abolished the Jesuit order from their realms. They exiled them. They removed them. So it was time. It was time after even the Pope himself abolished the order. It was time for the Jesuits to pay back those those Catholic countries, uh, those monarchs that had them exiled, and even the Pope himself who disbanded the Jesuits. So the first point uh, of proof that the Jesuits were responsible in France is that statement from the Great Controversy. That's the number one reason. Number two. There was a book, there was actually a, a set of four volumes of books called Memoirs Illustrating the History of Jacobinism by the Abbe Berul or Augustin Berul. Now, this was a Jesuit priest 
Think about this. This was a Jesuit priest that wrote four volumes of books with in-depth information about the plans and execution of those plans by the Jacobins, who he said was actually really part of the Illuminati and the, and the Rothschilds dynasty as well. Now think about that. The Jesuits are telling you it's not the Jesuits. That's that's like a serial killer, okay? That's that's on trial with like heaps of evidence stacked against them. It's just clear cut. This person did it, and then that person writing a history which contains specific, detailed insider information only uh, that he only has access to, which also just happens to you know completely. Uh, prove definitively that he's innocent. Now, if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn I want to sell you. And it, it's funny. It is funny, but it's also it's also it's also kind of sad because a lot of people do actually accept that. They accept the the view that it was the Illuminati or Adam Weishaupt's uh, order that he set up, and the Jacobins that had nothing to do with the Jesuit order at all. Or if that they were part of it, they were part of it through the Illuminati and not the other way around. Which is really just preposterous because, I mean, if you think about even the idea that the papacy is not the Antichrist, the two major other options for that are called preterism and futurism. They both come from Jesuit priests. It's just interesting. The Antichrist is telling you they're not the Antichrist. The Jesuits who are responsible for France are telling you that it's somebody else. I find that very interesting. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that the ideas, which is actually in Augustin Brule's books, the ideas of equality, fraternity, pure, pure uh, democracy and all that, it comes from a Jesuit university in Bavaria called Ingolstadt. Interestingly enough, for those of you who know the, uh, the, the fictional book, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, there are many individuals that believe because she was obsessed with the French Revolution and she was also, uh, she was also an avid reader of the Abbe Berul's histories on this, on the Jacobinism. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is believed by many historians to actually be an allegory of what happens when a country tries to basically remove God from the picture or play God. Because that's what Dr. Frankenstein tries to do. And interestingly enough, guess what university he learned the ideas of trying to create a human. He learned them from Ingolstadt. So he goes to Ingolstadt, he goes to that university, he comes back, and then he decides he's going to make his own human being. He's going to play God. He's going to create without God's help. And then what did he create? He ended up creating a monster. So that's just an interesting point there. So the ideas actually come from a Jesuit university, regardless of how you want to slice that. You want to say it's from Adam Weishaupt? Well, fine. At the end of the day, it comes from Ingolstadt, which is where he taught. He actually taught canon law, which is my fourth reason. Adam Weishaupt, the founder of the Order of the Illuminati, and he founded it in 1776, that's where the ideas of the French Revolution came from. 
He was a he was a professor of canon law. He was raised and trained by Jesuits. And then later on, he supposedly renounced his faith. And yet he still continued to teach canon law at the Jesuit University. Once again, if you believe that Adam Weishaupt was teaching canon law at a Jesuit university, but he was an agnostic or an atheist, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. All right, so that's my fourth reason, the fifth. And now we're going to get into a few quotes here. The fifth reason is that Pope Clement Thirteenth, he was actually going to abolish the Jesuit order, and he was, well, let me read what happened. This is from a book called uh, The Footprints of the Jesuits by R.W. Thompson, and this is from page 222. It says, During the night preceding the day appointed for the public ceremony of announcing the abolition of the Jesuits, Clement XIII was suddenly seized with convulsions and died, leaving the act unperformed and the Jesuits victorious. Cormenin records this event in the terse and expressive words, the Jesuits had poisoned him. So interestingly enough, back in 1773, Pope Clement XIII, under pressure from the Catholic monarchs of Europe. See, that's that's an important point of this because that's who Napoleon was uh, punishing. He was punishing the Catholic monarchs just as much as he was punishing the Pope. So the Catholic monarchs were pressuring the papacy to abolish the Jesuit order. He was going to do that. He was poisoned before he could carry it out. Pope Clement XIV, the very next pope, actually does abolish the Jesuit order with his, his papal bull. It's called Dominus Ac Redemptor. And from again from the book Footprints of the Jesuits by R.W. Thompson, we read this on page 227. It's page 227 on the Footprints of the Jesuits. That the name of the company shall be, and this is a this is a, a part of a copy of 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 the actual document abolishing the Jesuit order. So I apologize for that. Uh, this from Pope Clement the Fourteenth himself. It says that the name of the company shall be and is forever extinguished and suppressed, and that none no one of them do carry their audacity so far as to impugn combat or even write or speak about the said suppression or the reasons and motives of it, and that the said bull of suppression and abolition shall forever and to all eternity be valid, permanent, and efficacious. So it was pretty serious. He intended for this to, to last forever. He actually ended up dying about a year later. I have another quote here from History of Romanism by John Dowling, page 604. This is what the Pope Clement XIV was reported to have said after signing that papal bull. The suppression is accomplished. I do not repent of it, having only resolved on it after examining and weighing everything and because I thought it necessary for the church. If it were not done, I would do it now, 
but this suppression will be my death. So he stated that his the suppression would be his death. Later on, it is believed that he has also died uh, via poisoning. And again, we read from Footprints of the Jesuits uh, by R.W. Thompson. This is how it happened. A peasant woman was persuaded by means of a disguise to procure entrance into the Vatican and offer to the Pope a fig in which poison was concealed. Clement XIV was exceedingly fond of this fruit and ate it without hesitation. The same day, the first symptoms of severe illness were observed, and to these rapidly succeeded violent inflammation of the bowels. He soon became convinced that he was poisoned and remarked, Alas, I knew they would poison me, but I did not expect to die in so slow and cruel a manner. His terrible sufferings continued for several months. When he died, the poor victim, said Cormenin, of the execrable Jesuits. So Pope Clement Thirteenth and Pope Clement Fourteenth were killed by the Jesuit order. Interesting. And some of you might be asking, well, wait a second, isn't the Pope the Antichrist? Well, yes, of course he is. But as is so often with sin, sin is your master. If you if you dabble with sin, it's like taking a dog by the ears. It it, it comes back to bite you. You see, the the great lie of the arch deceiver, Lucifer, is that there's freedom and happiness and liberation in sin. And there's actually not. Jesus says that. Those who sin are slaves to sin. You see, the Pope has a master. It's sinfulness. It's, it's the devil. It's the Jesuit order. The Jesuit order has the same master. The devil himself is not master, but is mastered by sin. He can do nothing else. Even when he wanted to come back, Mrs. White records in the, I mean, the, just came up off the top of my head it, it escapes me now I think it's in early writings but when Satan wanted to come back he realized that he had made a mistake and he wanted to come back you know for the wrong reasons but Christ met with him and told him that the seed of evil was already within his heart and that he could not come back it was it wasn't possible because his rebellion had been so complete you see, sin, sin comes back to bite all who dabble with it. Okay, so that's the sixth reason. Number seven. Now, Napoleon, for those of you who don't know, was believed to be trained by the Jesuit order. And I have a book here called Vatican Assassins, which talks a little bit about the fact that the Jesuits always were reaping the benefits of Napoleon's exports. Keep in mind that when Napoleon really abolished the rights of man in the Constitution, he also had no clause in there for slavery, and he did try to bring it back. And that's what—that's when one of his colonies ended up having their own war of independence, uh, a little place called Haiti. And there was a war there because Napoleon was trying to take over the island they don't know for sure whether he was trying to bring back slavery but he did have slavery officially legalized in some of the other colonies so it was believed that that's exactly what he was trying to do clearly he didn't care 
uh, whether somebody was a slave or not. He cared about uh, pumping up the French economy to make France the new superpower of the world. So this is from page 233 in Vatican Assassins. And it makes a great point here. It says, Did not the Jesuits benefit when Napoleon Bonaparte drove the Bourbon king of Spain into exile? Remember, the Bourbons, the Bourbon kings were the monarchs that really put pressure on the papacy to abolish the Jesuit order. Did not the Jesuits benefit when Napoleon drove the Braganza king of Portugal to South America? Did not the Jesuits benefit when... Napoleon drove the Knights of Malta from the island of Malta, confiscating all their treasures and weapons. Remember, the Knights had previously expelled the Jesuits from Malta. Did not the Jesuits benefit when Napoleon conquered the Protestant Dutch Republic, founded by one of our heroes, William of Orange? Did not the Jesuits benefit when Napoleon conquered Italy and vanquished Austria, as both nations had expelled the Jesuit order? Did not the Jesuits benefit... When Napoleon conquered Protestant Switzerland, would not the Jesuits have benefited if the French General Hoke had succeeded in breaking away Catholic Ireland from Protestant England, later accomplished after World War I? Did not the Jesuits benefit when Napoleon broke up the Pope's Holy Roman Empire? Remember, the Holy Roman Empire was the emperor was really the emperor of Austria, and during the various coalitions of the countries of Europe against, which usually included Austria, actually I think every time it did, um, when they would form a coalition and fight against France, which was really fighting against Napoleon, and then they would lose usually, except England usually would get some victories by the seas, but, but the rest of them on the land, the land battles, they would lose. And... At some point, the Austrian emperor actually officially dissolved and disbanded the Holy Roman Empire. So again, who benefited from that? Jesuit order. It goes on, it says, Why did nearly every strategy of Napoleon result in benefiting the Jesuit order? The answer is in the person of Abbe Siez. According to Ridpath's Universal History, this priest was a prime mover of the French Revolution. The Directory and the Second Consul on Napoleon's Consulate, calling for the end of the nobility and clergy, his enemies, the enemies of the Society of Jesus. It is also most fascinating to see what Sayez, to see that Sayez was Jesuit trained, as we read. Sayez, Emmanuel Joseph, one of the chief political thinkers and writers of the period of the French Revolution and First Empire, he was destined for the church, was educated by the Jesuits, became a licentiate of the canon law. So it's kind of interesting. This individual who actually published a pamphlet uh, in 1789 talking about the Third Estate and who they were and the rights that they deserved, he was Jesuit trained. He actually became the second consul at one point. But of course, Napoleon eventually became emperor. So, that brings me to the eighth point here. The eighth point is that Napoleon, he did away with the, the rights of man. He brought back slavery to France. He was beloved by the people. His constitution 
uh, as I stated, did not include the rights of man. He ended the Holy Roman Empire. He crowned himself emperor. He actually invited the Pope to his ceremony. And then, whereas historically the Pope would set the crown on, or the mitre, on the king or the emperor's head, Napoleon grabbed it from the pillow himself and crowned himself, really to show that the papacy was under him. So he spread his empire and took over Protestant and Catholic countries, including taking control of Bavaria, which is where the University of Ingolstadt was. He took Pope Pius VI captive in 1798, just as we read in prophecy. And then Pope Pius VII, he signs a concordat with in 1801. And then that same Pope, Pope Pius VII, reestablished the Jesuit order in 1814. So in a very short period of time, the Jesuits were officially reestablished. Now later on, Napoleon was eventually defeated by another coalition. And... He began to, because he was constantly on the war path, he lost, the people became really disillusioned with him. And he was eventually exiled. He came back one time and tried to retake his throne. It failed. And he was actually exiled to St. Helena. Now, this is what Napoleon himself says about the Jesuit order. This is from a publication called Memorial of the Captivity of Napoleon at St. Helena, attributed to General Montholon, volume 2, page 62 and 174. But you can also find the same quote in the book 50 Years of the Church of Rome by Charles Chinique, uh, page 487 and 488. It says this. This is Napoleon speaking now. The Jesuits are a military organization, not a religious order. Now, before we go on... For Napoleon, of all people, to say something like this. He was the military men of military men. As I stated in the last one, if you actually look at the battles and the tactical strategy that Napoleon employed, I think that he was, as far as heathen generals go, I think he was probably one of the best if not the best heathen general that ever lived. He was a brilliant strategist and tactical mind. Now, if he's saying, if he is saying that the Jesuits are a military or organization and not a religious order, that should perk our ears up. Because he does know the difference. He goes on. He says their chief is a general of an army, not the mere father abbot of a monastery. And the aim of this organization is power. Power in its most despotic exercise. Absolute power. Universal power. Power to control the world by the volition of a single man. Jesuitism is the most absolute of despotisms, and at the same time the greatest and most enormous of abuses. The general of the Jesuits insists on being master sovereign over the sovereign. Wherever the Jesuits are admitted, they will be masters, cost what it may. Their society is by nature dictatorial, and therefore it is the irre irrecon irreconcilable enemy of all constituted authority. Every act, every crime, however atrocious, 
is a meritorious work if committed for the interest of the society of the Jesuits or by the order of the general. It's very interesting because even Mrs. White in Great Controversy, when first talking about the establishment of the Jesuit order, basically says the same thing that Napoleon's saying here is that the Society of Jesus, no, no matter how atrocious the act is, if it's committed in the service of the church, it is considered a, a great, wonderful act. And that's what happened in France. And that's why it's so important for us to remember that whoever this, whoever the individual is, whether it's Trump or some other person, some other dictatorial individual, or maybe some other way in which the Constitution is overthrown, and we can see that if it follows the same way that France did, that the Jesuits are behind it, and that the people will likely fully embrace it. They will embrace the destruction of the Constitution or amendments to it. They will embrace the rule of a single individual or maybe a small group of individuals and the suppression of the rights of individuals at large. So is that going to happen in this country in our lifetime? I think so. I think it will. I think it's already happening in other countries. And I think the backlash is going to be very French Revolution-esque. And we have to uh, just make sure that we keep our eyes on Christ. And that we are daily, daily in submission to him. Because knowing prophecy and knowing history, it's, it's great to, to have that as a tool, as a weapon in our arsenal. But it means absolutely nothing if we don't have a relationship with Christ. Because only he is going to be able to protect us in the days to come. And in some ways, he's, he may choose one of us, listening to this right now, may be chosen as an individual that will be called to give up their lives uh, for his cause so that there will be others in the kingdom. So let us prepare to be able to go as far as the Lord uh, is trying to take us and to be in full submission and surrender to him each and every day, walking by faith, justified by faith, sanctified by faith, and eventually glorified by faith. This concludes our discussion on the French Revolution. I might look at another piece of history somewhere else. I'll catch you guys next week, and God bless.